really neat thing is we've been um, given or donated 250 plastic bags from Aldi, you know, those real strong ones, which was a huge answer to prayer because we were wondering how, we're, how the best way to distribute these bags were. We've also had boxes of canned goods donated um, from other locations. People from here from the church have gone out places and asked people uh, boldly, saying, hey, can you give to this Thanksgiving food drive? And uh, it's a remarkable opportunity as a church. Last year, we just were overwhelmed with the response from the people in the community. Uh, we had to turn people away. We didn't have enough to give out. Um, we fed hundreds of people. We gave away um, nearly 200 bags. And we are confident this year we'll be able to exceed that. But you've got you've to be a part of it. Uh, even this Friday, we're going to join here down in the fellowship hall at 6 o'clock, I think, or 7. Um, come at both, either. And uh, we're going to begin to separate items put them in bags, stuff bags, and prepare the day, uh, prepare for the following day. So if you can't be here on Saturday morning, come Friday evening. If you can't come Friday evening, come Saturday morning. Um, we especially need men. Last year there was just an, uh, a huge amount of men from the community that came in. And uh, we need to have men available who can talk with them. Uh, most of the guys wanted to talk, play chess, hang out. They stood for an hour, two hours, and it's just a, it's a great time to sit down with somebody and show them concern that perhaps they haven't had uh, shown to them in a long time. Um, I'm also uh, told that uh, we still need more people to volunteer to, to cook spaghetti. Um, that's what we're going to feed the people as they come uh, and as well to help serve it. So downstairs after worship, Sarah Torres, um, I believe, will be there. If not her, then another on her team. Um, if you're willing and able to help out in that way, please do that. Um, like I said, being here on Saturday uh, is going to be greater than you can imagine. Uh, I'm confident of that and I know God is in this. And this is a great opportunity for us as the church, as I want us to seize. Would you bow with me in prayer as we um, continue on this morning's message? Lord, your word says to be still and to know that you are God. Lord, this morning we recognize that there is none like you. Lord, your word has been piercing our hearts from Malachi. And God, for that we're grateful. We want to be refined in every way in the hands of the great refiner, the loving God of the universe. And Lord, as you continue pricking our hearts this morning, would we be open to what you have for us, God? In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. What would you do for $10,000 cash? Just think about that for a moment. What would you do? There was a Chicago radio station that posed that question some years ago. And they had, I believe, 600 respondents. The person who won was an interesting one. This gentleman said that he would eat... This would be good, right? An 11-foot birch sapling, a baby birch tree. He's going to eat a tree. So he won the, the, the contest, and he went at it. He took the leaves, the roots, the bark, every bit of it. All he had, he didn't have a fork or a knife, but he had a pruning shears. It took him 18 hours over a three-day period to consumed the entire tree. And the only condiment he had was French salad dressing for the leaves. 
When it was all over, the man complained of an upset stomach and one person said that evidently the bark was worse than the bite. <laughs> it's interesting that the gentleman's name, I googled it, I'm like, how true is this story? And, uh, and I've, I found a guy from the same location on Facebook. So I sent him a message on Facebook and he hasn't responded. And I was really hoping he would. I'd say, can you humor me? Tell me this is true. Because same name, similar town in Indiana. But if I find out next week, I'll let you guys know. The reality is we need money, don't we? We need money. We need money to pay utility bills, pay for our rent. We need to eat, be clothed. And we would like some money to have for sporting events or pick up the new smartphone or pick up a cup of coffee on the go, eat out for dinner. You know, money is an important thing. We need money. And money itself is not a bad thing. The Bible teaches in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. But money in and of itself is not evil. In fact, in the Bible there are many wealthy people. Take Job, for instance, or Solomon, who built this remarkable temple. And there are people who use their wealth to honor God, whether it be in their wealth and even at times in their poverty. But there's one instance where Jesus finds a man called a rich young ruler. We looked at this in our Bible study on Monday night. And Jesus confronts this guy, and Jesus' issue with him is not that this guy is wealthy. Being wealthy is not bad. But it's this guy's failure to honor God with his wealth. It was his attachment to his riches. It consumed him, it owned him. And for that, the guy walked away from Jesus. And Jesus said, it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Today's sermon is about money. And if this is your first time here at Good News Bible Church, you might be thinking, I've come to church and you're talking about money. I'm not going to apologize for it because the Bible talks about money. In fact, Jesus talks quite frequently about money. Now what I will apologize for are those who talk about money and abuse it in a church setting. Who might imply that you need to give in order to receive great blessings of riches on this earth and that you could be a millionaire and that's God's will for your life and if you're not, it's because you lack faith. I apologize for those who've said that. I'm sorrowed by those who take advantage of other people telling them, call this number on TV, send in your gift, touch the screen. That's wrong talking about money. Malachi doesn't go that route. Malachi teaches us about money and three primary things that we'll learn about giving in particular that I think are essential for us. So three essential things. First thing we'll look at is that giving that we need to give repentantly, not reluctantly. Secondly, we need to give radically, yet responsibly. And thirdly, we need to give resolutely and not regretfully. And as we unpack these three crucial points, it's my desire that we will begin to see that our giving to God is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. And that as we worship God with our finances, that the people around us might see something about us. And they might glorify God as a result. And that they can see that my treasure is in God and not on this earth. So as we look at Malachi, 
Would you turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, as Brenton read for us so well just a few moments ago. I'm going to read it again. Malachi is addressing this matter of their giving to God. And like I said, this point we'll see that God wants us to give repentantly, not reluctantly. Verses 6 through 9 say this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the cursed, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Strong words throughout the book of Malachi. You can't get away from it. Because God is again trying to bring to their attention how they have failed him. And he bases verse, uh, this portion from verse 6. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. And this statement might seem a bit out of place at first, but if you remember last week, last week in chapter 2, verse 17, they asked a question. They said, Where is the God of justice? You remember that? They saw evil in the world and they thought, well, God doesn't care because he hasn't done anything about it. And God responds to them say, you know what, first of all, I'm, I'm working when you don't even see me and I'm working to refine my people. And then also, I will one day fully execute justice on the wicked. That's God's plan. And even now he is at work. And he was revealing that to Israel who couldn't see it. And here in verse 6, he says, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. See, last week, the emphasis was that God is a God of mercy. He is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. And God says, because I am merciful, I have delayed in my judgment of the wicked. And here he says, because I am merciful, I have delayed in my judgment of you, my people. He bases what he's about to say on his unchanging character. In theology, this is called God's immutability. That God does not change. God is always gracious. He's always loving. He's always angered at sin. God does not change. He's eternal in his past, eternal in the future. God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that character... He says, I have not consumed you, O children of Jacob. I have not destroyed you. Which implies that they deserve it. And what is the reason for their deserving? We see in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. It's interesting because you remember last week, God said his desire was to restore worship in Israel as in the days of old. So God acknowledges that good things took place in the past. That my people worshiped me in honor. But here he also recognizes that there is rebellion in the past among my people. Malachi doesn't sugarcoat the past. He doesn't say, man, the good old days. We need to be like that. Because he remembers, uh, God remembers and he tells Malachi, this is how things were. 
And I think we fall into that rut so often. We, we idealize the past. We think those were the good old days in the 1940s and 50s when the church was strong and a force in our culture. And this is true. And it was true that Israel worshipped God also. But if we idealize the past, if we romanticize it, we become blind to the flaws that in the 40s and 50s that whites and blacks cannot worship in the same church. That there was segregation within the same America that we often say the good old days. And Malachi says, you know, we recognize the good things that did take place because there were. God was at work in the past and is at work in the present. But a common denominator among God's people from the past to the present is this continual proning to wander. Continual rebellion and waywardness. That God is always calling his people back. We sing that. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And Malachi says, this is your past. Speaking for God. And then God tells them what he needs them to do. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is a call to repentance. You turn away from something to turn to another thing. Don't let people ever tell you that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. You ever heard that before? Right here, God says, I don't change. I didn't used to be wrath and am now love. He says to them, return to me. This is a display of love. If God wanted, he could have wiped them out in wrath, but he has delayed and said, return to me. I don't change. Return to me, O children. Return to me. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. It's interesting that God says, return to me, then I will return to you. And there's a strong sense that we take initiative in this, but we all know that in our hearts, we're rebellious. How can we turn to God when in our heart we're rebellious toward Him? We're hostile. Unless His Holy Spirit quickens us and stirs us to repentance. There's a, a monergism, if you will. There's, there's, a, un, there's a, a, a working that God does initially, but then a, a certain synergism, if you will, where then God spurs us on to work. But God is the initiator, and He says, return to me, and now I'll return to you. His very preaching is the initiative here. The issue is, well, they say, how shall we return? You see that in the end of verse 7? But how shall we return to you, God? They're not asking, God, really, how, I want to come back. As we've seen throughout Alakai, the tone is always one of defensiveness. Their question is, how do we return to you, God, if we're doing all right? And God says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? in your tithes and contributions. There God tells him the issue. His people have failed to honor him and tithe and to give of their money, their resources to him. And for that, God was angered and God tells him to return, which implies that the failure to give to the Lord's work is a matter of sin. He wouldn't have said, return to me, 
if there wasn't disobedience. God says, return to me, and I'll return to you. They ask, how have we gone away? Because you haven't given to me. God equates the failure to give to him with robbing him. Pickpocketing God, if you will. Stealing from him. Strong words does God give to Malachi. And in fact, he continues on in verse 9 that he will curse them for their failure to obey. He will curse them. Now, what's the issue here? I mean, God, really, are you in need of money? Has a recession got to you too? I mean, are you really struggling financially? And this is not the issue. Psalm 50 verse 10 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not in need. Romans 11.35 says, Who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid? That God should repay someone. Does God owe somebody anything of value? Anything at all? God is not without riches. He's not like a support-raising missionary that if we don't give on Sunday morning, he's got to come off the field and come back and begin to go to churches and raise support. God is fully funded by himself. He is not lacking riches. In fact, Isaiah 55 says, God cries out, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and eat. God will provide. So what's the issue here? Why does God want his people to give of their finances to him? It's not about the money as much as it is about the heart condition attached. Failure to give to the Lord's work is reflective in our worship. The whole book of Malachi has been about worship. And when things cause us to look away, to the right or to the left, when we can't see clearly, our worship gets blurred. And something prevented them from giving to God. And obviously, it's the fact that they have erected money in their hearts as an idol. This is why we need to give repentantly, recognizing in our hearts how we make money an idol. See, if giving is an act of worship, and if we fail to give, we've fractured in our worship with God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Holding on to our treasures on earth, our riches, our wealth, shows that that is where our heart is, our worship is. Jesus continues on in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money says Jesus. In part, we can measure our allegiance to God by measuring our allegiance to money. And if our allegiance to money is stronger, it's reflected in our worship. Brenton said it this morning, and we say it every Sunday, when we receive our morning offering, we say that we're going to continue our worship. That's very intentional language when we use. 
Because we recognize that when we open up our wallets, our checkbooks, our accounts, our money, which ultimately is God's money, which He's given to us to manage, it's an act of worship to Him. That's what God's concerned about. He, he, he's, not, he's not needing to replenish His bank account. It's the heart attachment. And for this, Malachi teaches, teaches us that we need to give repentantly, not reluctantly. We can't be reluctant, saying, God, no, this is not, no, not going to work. Be on the defensive. Well, God, you know how we're doing rough. Malachi says, you haven't given me your tithe, says the Lord of hosts. And for that, he calls them to repent, to return to him. Well, he says to return to him, but then he provides for them almost an understanding of how to do it. So he says, give repentantly, not reluctantly. Here we learn that we're to give radically, yet responsibly. Follow with me as I read verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer, which is a locust of sorts. He says, I will rebuke it for you, so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then... All nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He tells them to bring in the full tithes. Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10 say, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Many understand this, that our giving should be based upon our gross income, not our net. Because the first fruits is what we begin with. Our net is after taxes. And that's how many understand this verse. He says your full tithes. A tithe was 10% in the Old Testament. This is what God asked His people, required of His people, I should say, to give to His work. And earlier he mentioned his contributions. That is the above and beyond uh, money that was delegated, designated for sacred work. God's being very particular here. There's no beating around the bush. And he says to give the full tithe, which may imply that they were giving partial tithes. And I've said it before that partial obedience is not obedience. God tells them, give me your full tithe, your full obedience. And then he gives them even more motivation. He says, that there may be food in my house. He says, thereby put me to the test. Test me. It's interesting he says that. If you remember in Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quoted that when Satan tested him. He said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But Deuteronomy 6.16 says, as you tested him at Massa. When is it appropriate or inappropriate to test God? You may remember Gideon, who told God, all right, God, you want me to do this? 
okay, how about I do this? I'm going to take my jacket, I'm going to leave it outside overnight, and in the morning I'm going to come out and that jacket is full of water and the ground is dry around it from the dew, uh, so that the dew gets in the jacket only, then, then I'll obey you. He tests God. He gets out there, sees his jacket is soaked, the ground is dry, he wrings it out. But his faith was small, and he says, God, can you do the opposite next morning? Like, have the ground wet and my sweater dry? Next morning, dry sweater. Wet ground. God doesn't destroy Gideon on the spot. Gideon had little faith, and God wanted to build into him. How about when the Pharisees tell Jesus, who should we pay our taxes to? Jesus ultimately says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. They tested Jesus, trying to get him in a trap, and Jesus, with his great wisdom, puts it back on them. Frequently they try to test Jesus, asking him, when a woman marries a man, and her husband dies, and she remarries, and that husband dies, and this happens seven times. Who will she be married to in the afterlife? Which one's going to be her husband? Remember that? Try and test Jesus. And he says, there is no one giving marriage in eternity. That testing was inappropriate because they wanted to trap Jesus so as to find reasons to kill him. And Deuteronomy says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, because at Massa, which was a location, they said, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die here in the desert? Testing God. And God said, that's the testing you do not do. That's inappropriate. That's wrong. But in Malachi, he says, put me to the test. See that I will not bless you. God wants to build faith into us. He wants to build us up like Gideon. Because so many of us, our faith is so small, especially when it comes to our finances. You might know people whose gift is giving. I've known people like that. They're just remarkable people. And I know there's some of you here in this church whose spiritual gift is giving. And you are remarkable. We praise God for you. We need to learn from people like you. Because so many of us have such small faith. And God says, test me. And he says, see that I do not open the windows of heaven for you. The windows of heaven. God's blessing has heavenly DNA, if you will. He said, I will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Not no more want. God will supply our needs. This Hebrew word has the idea of sufficiency or God being enough for us. And I think what God is saying Test Him in such a way that we look back and say, God, you are enough and I'm going to respond in this way with the wealth you've given me, the money you've given me. God says there will be no more need. Some people have used texts like these to preach what they call a prosperity gospel. Someone who I really admire speaks out against this and I've learned a lot from him. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. To say that it's God's will that we are healthy and wealthy is not the gospel. Jesus said, take up your cross, your instrument of execution, and follow me. Where does health and wealth fit with taking up your cross? 
We will receive health and wealth in eternity, indeed. But on this life, God has called us to take up our cross and follow Him. Are there material blessings in Christ Jesus? Yeah. Are there times where God chooses to bless somebody with great riches? Sometimes, yeah. Does God call that person to honor Him with their riches? He sure does. We are far well off than we like to think sometimes. As a nation, we are so wealthy. I have a big concern that future generations will look back on us, on their ancestors, and say, boy, how they squandered their wealth. I really do fear that. That our grandchildren and great-grandchildren would say, look at how prosperous those years were. Think of all the missionaries that could have been sent out to all over the earth. Of the young men and women who could have been trained to do God's work. I really fear that future generations will look on us with shame and disappointment. Wealth is given to God's people that we might give it away. Those who want to hoard it in this prosperity gospel must not be aware of 1 Timothy 6, 6, when it says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Read that at your prosperity gospel sermons. Follow this gospel and you'll go into ruin and destruction. How about that? And that's when Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. God calls us brothers and sisters to not hold on to our money with a tight fist. It is true, though, that the New Testament never tells us that we need to tithe, that we need to give 10% of our income. That's true. It doesn't say that. Because what the New Testament teaches is something far beyond that. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 16, verses 6 and on for you, pointing out some various principles that Paul does about what it means to give as a New Testament believer, which we are here at Good News Bible Church. It says, the point is this, what Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You give a little, you get a little. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 7, 16, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The principle is in our hearts. Paul didn't say, give 10% and you fulfilled your role. The danger with setting numerical values is that it presents a certain religiosity where we think we are being good if we give 10%. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound 
in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Hear that? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The New Testament didn't say we need to give 10% because I believe what it has in mind is something greater. 10% should be a starting point, not an ending point. You've heard it said that we need to give till it hurts. Mother Teresa has supposedly said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. George Mueller said, God judges what we give by what we keep. We've got to give where it hurts sometimes. Perhaps make certain sacrifices in order to give more to God as an act of worship and do it joyfully, not under compulsion. This is radical giving, the Bible teaches. We have to also give when it hurts. There are tough times in our nation. And some of us, I know, are struggling seriously financially. But I can't see the Bible telling us that then we forsake giving unto the Lord. God wants all of our worship, not just part. He wants us to be radical, not reluctant. I said that we also have to not just give radically, but give responsibly. There's a tension here, I recognize it. But if our, the money that we have is God's money, then we ought not be irresponsible with it. And there's definite tension there, and I haven't solved that even in my own mind. What it means to be radical in our giving and to be responsible with our giving. And that's for you to go home and ask God, God, how am I to be radical with the money you've given to me? Keeping in mind what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Malachi sort of gives us a, maybe a starting point when he says bring in the full tithe, the full 10%, and as God's people to work beyond that. Not because God needs our monies as much as it is he wants our worship. God tells them, I will rebuke the devourer if you do this so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil. But hear what's implied there. That God has chosen to let a locust of some sort devour the crops. And he has chosen not to rebuke it, waiting for their repentance. Are there times when God disciplines us for our failure to worship him with our money? Malachi seems to say so. Yeah. Which is why God begs them in the beginning of our passage and he says, return to me and I'll return to you. 
Verse 12. Then, it says, after they've done, after they've tested him and experienced this heavenly blessing, he says, then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. God's blessing upon God's people will cause an unbelieving world to look upon his people and marvel. Wow. But when we fail to test God, how can we be light and salt? How could a world look at us when we're greedy, tight-fisted, hoarding, There are implications beyond the church here at stake, brothers and sisters of Goodness Bible Church. It's to an unbelieving world that they might see, that the nations might see that we are blessed. There's so many dimensions to God's blessing. There are certainly monetary ones at times. Oh, but there is a richness of spiritual ones. Ephesians 1 tells we've been predestined and that we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I don't doubt that, yes, God will bless us at times with finances, with wealth, but oh, the richness of the spiritual blessings there are in Christ Jesus when we test God in faith and worship Him with our money. We are to give repentantly, not reluctantly. We're to give radically, yet responsibly. And lastly, Malachi teaches that we need to give resolutely, not regretfully. We've got to resolve, determine to give to God. Look at verses 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, always on the defensive, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The NIV says, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? That's their charge against God. It's almost as if they wanted to obey God, but they wanted something in return. They said, what is the profit, the profit of walking in obedience to God? What do we profit? This word profit always involves the idea of greed or money earned by wickedness. Joseph's brothers, when they, uh, when they saw him with his coat of many colors, when they grabbed him, Judah said, what will it profit us if we kill him? Let's instead sell him into slavery, and we'll make a profit. Same word in Hebrew. And Malachi is rebuking these people by the power of God here, because they have looked at obedience to God in terms of what they get in return what the profit is for them. And they say, what's the use here? The wicked are getting more than we are. 
Look at them. They're arrogant. They're blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and get away with it. That word test is the same exact word that God just told them to test him with. They said, you want us to test you, God? Well, the evil people do it and they get away with it. Totally missing the point here. They regretted obedience. Oh, pitiful are we if we regret our obedience to God. It may hurt, but they regretted it. And they again charged God with injustice. The evildoers prosper. Look at us, your people. We're struggling. There certainly is a tension in this life. We walk on this earth and we see wickedness prospering. We know of children of God who are struggling. But to turn to God and say it's vanity to serve you, they've crossed the line. We walk by faith, not by sight in this life, knowing that there's only a momentary affliction on this body if we live 70, 80, 90 years. But in eternity, there's an eternal weight of glory, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it is, or 4. They could not see that. They saw only this life. And they dishonored God. God has a message for the people of Israel. And the message was to educate them about giving to Him. He tells them that they got to give repentantly, acknowledging their faults, their shortcomings. They are to give repentantly, not reluctantly, to give radically, their full tithes and contributions. We apply this to us. We give till it hurts, when it hurts. We give as an act of worship. But you're to give resolutely, determining, we're going to do this, God, and I'm not going to regret it. What would you do for $10,000 of cash? What would you do for riches? What would you do with riches if you got it? Or even better yet, what do you do with the riches you have? Do you view your money as an opportunity to worship God? Do you view your wealth as an opportunity to let the world around you see that God is your treasure? I believe that's what God wanted from His people here and they just could not see it. And for us here, let it be that we recognize that our giving is an act of worship and that our giving declares to the world around us that our treasure is not here, but it's in God, in heaven. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Oh Lord God, it's such a paradigm shift in our minds. What does it mean to give sacrificially? Above and beyond. Radically. Lord, teach us these things. That we might give to your work. Certainly, God. That we might see your work in this community, in this world. But also, God, that we might worship you in fullness, not in partialness. God, it's our desire to honor you with all that we have, and that included our wealth, our money, our bank accounts. Lord God, let our giving be an act of worship and may it declare to the world around us that you are our treasure and you alone for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, I pray these things. Amen. At this time, we have a special thing we're going to do at this moment. And um, as you guys all know, in our 